this were an anarchist jurisdiction As the president likes to say Then Kendra James and Qantas Hayes Would be alive today They would not have been gunned down by a racist police force Because we would have defunded it long ago, of course Taking all that money to spend on things that people need Not violent gangs of thugs making people bleed If this were an anarchist jurisdiction As the Attorney General tells Then we would have already emptied all those prison cells that house the mentally ill and so many, many more Who are only locked up for being sick or being poor Or for having been set up or for crimes of poverty There'd be none of that nonsense under our authority If this were an anarchist jurisdiction It'd be a beautiful scene With so much less asphalt so much more green And there would be no tear gas No eviction raids You'd see what solutions look like When they're not just band-aids If the people ran this city Not just millionaires We'd take the stolen profits That which they call theirs If this were an anarchist jurisdiction As the brown shirts oft repeat would not see these tents and couches lining every street without control by corporate interests that dominate our lives making sure that they have everything while we're lucky to survive is profit over people no matter how much blood they shed if we were calling the shots then you'd turn that on its head if this were an anarchist jurisdiction From the brand new album, Say Their Names, that was David Ruvix with Anarchist Jurisdiction. Greetings and welcome to Howie 2020. This is an independent podcast on progressive politics, inspired by Bernie Sanders, Howie Hawkins, Angela Walker, progressive and radical activism, and the Green Party. This podcast is completely independent of any candidate, party, PAC, or political organization. If you want to check out back episodes and back episodes of Bernie 2020, just go to bernie-2020.com. You'll find a link there as well to send me a message. First up is a piece published at popularresistance.org and written by Dana Ward and Paul Messersmith-Glavin. Why anarchism is dangerous. Anarchists frighten privileged elites and their authoritarian followers, not simply because the primary goals of the movement have been to abolish the sources of elite power, the state, patriarchy, and capitalism, but because anarchism offers a viable alternative form of social and political organization grounded in workplace collectives neighborhood assemblies, bottom-up federations, child-centered free schools, 
and a variety of cultural organizations operating on the basis of cooperation, solidarity, mutual aid, and direct participatory democracy. Opposed to all forms of hierarchy, domination, and exploitation, anarchists work to create a culture grounded in equal access to resources, making the genuine exercise of freedom possible. Over the past century and a half, and particularly in the last two decades, the self-managing principles of anarchism have proliferated around the world and have also become part of the standard operating procedures of protest. Since elites would be rendered redundant in an anarchist egalitarian society, no wonder rulers tremble at the thought of anarchist jurisdictions. The grim realities of the climate crisis, the coronavirus pandemic, and ongoing police violence have laid bare the inadequacies of the current leadership in the existing governing system while also providing opportunities, like all crises, to create significant change. Whether or not we achieve a historical pivot to a fundamentally different society will depend in part upon maintaining militant and creative political pressure in the streets while simultaneously building forms of counterpower, counterinstitutions, and organizations prefiguring the anarchist vision of a free society. This is a time of significant cultural upheaval in regards to issues revolving around race met by severe political reaction and the attempted retrenchment of white patriarchal power. In contrast to the first Black Lives Matter movement several years ago in response to the murders of Trayvon Martin and Mike Brown, White people's understanding of how historic forms of oppression continue to shape our lives is growing. Black Lives Matter may be the largest social protest movement in U.S. history. In the first two months after police murdered George Floyd in Minneapolis, approximately 15 to 26 million people, up to 8% of the population, participated in a Black Lives Matter protest. The president employs shop-worn stereotypes to delegitimize the movement in the streets by claiming anarchists and Antifa, which are anti-fascists, are sinister elements behind these protests. But the vast majority of participants are in fact poor and working-class people of color and their white allies. This is largely a spontaneous uprising. Anarchists are indeed on the streets in solidarity, demanding justice, just as they have been since anarchists first called for the abolition of capitalism and the state in the process of creating a mass working-class movement in the 1860s. But the tactics used in the current uprising are a combination of historically proven methods honed over decades of struggle and new adaptations to the increasingly mar militarized, brutal police. Today's anarchists are neither leading nor instigating the current protests. The anarchist's role in the actions, however, goes far beyond being in the streets with protesters. Since anarchism's reemergence in the 1990s, when anarchist organizing principles were used to shut down the World Trade Organization meetings in Seattle, anarchism has permeated contemporary oppositional movements. The anarchist emphasis on direct action and street militants help define today's movements, as do the use of affinity groups and black bloc tactics. 
militant horizontalism is today's protest standard. The significance of the sustained protests against police violence is that the key ingredient for successful change is the militant disruption of everyday life, like we have seen in Portland, Louisville, Rochester, and many other communities across the country. We know from studies of 323 violent and nonviolent movements around the world, protests that mobilize at least 3.5% of the population can produce regime change. While today's protests are not about regime change, but about social and political change, there is reason for hope that today's protests will create an historical inflection that will be far more significant than merely changing the occupant of the Oval Office. As our society and its political establishment continue to be mired in chaos, anarchism offers a viable way out, a way to organize ourselves in a free and cooperative fashion outside the electoral process. Partly for this reason, elites vilify anarchists. Grotesque caricatures of anarchism have always been used by politicians to frighten citizens and justify the murder, beating, deportation, and jailing of anarchists, many of them recent immigrants, whose only crime was belief in the possibility of a better world. How ironic then that it is anarchists who are perceived as violent, when in fact the vast majority of violence has been perpetrated by those working for capitalists and the state. Nevertheless, anarchists have made major contributions to our history by creating space for new possibilities in the process of, quote, demanding the impossible. Anarchism today is much changed from its 19th century origins, but the core principles remain the same and can be seen in action on the streets and in work going on in the neighborhoods of cities and towns, large and small. Over a hundred years ago, in his book Mutual Aid, A Factor in Evolutionism, anarchist Peter Kropotkin argued against Herbert Spencer's interpretation of Charles Darwin, pointing out that evolution is not driven by competition within species, but rather between species and those species that cooperate most are best suited for survival. Social cooperation allows humans to care for each other and work together to overcome adversity. This is exactly how people have responded to the coronavirus pandemic. As Gia Tolentino observed in The New Yorker, informal child care collectives, transgender support groups, and other ad hoc organizations operate without the top-down leadership or philanthropic funding that most charities depend on. There is no comprehensive directory of such groups, most of which do not seek or receive much attention but suddenly they seem to be everywhere. People are responding with care, cooperation, and mutual aid amidst the calamity of the coronavirus pandemic. The frenzy of police brutality and the recent devastating forest fires on the U.S. West Coast. In Portland, Oregon, people have been in the streets protesting in support of black lives and against the police for over 100 consecutive days, only taking a short break during the forest fires. Countless collectives, organizations, affinity groups, and blocks have formed. As Roger Pete of the Just Seeds Artists Cooperative observes, 
There has been a vast blossoming of small nuclei providing an eclectic variety of services to the protesting population. Snacks, eyewash, helmets, carefully built shields, wound care, pamphlets, water, communication, and more. These mutual aid networks and small structures provide an ameliorative infrastructure to the nightly context of protest, but they also provide a coherent thing for a participant to do outside of the nominally vague goal of simply protesting. Pop-up clinics have been organized to provide for protesters aftercare to help with the physical and emotional effects of blunt force trauma and exposure to the chemical warfare used by police. And with West Coast air quality recently the worst in the world due to massive forest fires, the militants switch for a time to provide disaster relief. From street medics on the front lines of protests and disaster relief, to organizers in Brooklyn bringing people groceries during the pandemic, direct action initiative by everyday people is making a material difference in people's everyday lives. There is also widespread recognition in the U.S. of the failure of the state as a viable means of social organization. Starting decades ago, with disillusionment over the U.S. war in Vietnam, the Watergate scandal, and revelations about the role of the FBI in suppressing social movements, the inadequacy of the state is currently illustrated by the inept federal response to the coronavirus pandemic, a torn social safety net that protects very few, an environment in collapse, and systemic racism enforced by militarized police. It is increasingly clear that the government cannot solve these multiple crises. Anarchists present fundamental and urgent alternatives to hierarchical power and to a society based on exploitation and domination. Disruption in the streets changes the political conversation. Just as the Occupy Wall Street movement changed the political conversation to focus on economic inequality, today's protests have changed the conversation to focus on systemic racism. As the conversation changes, values change, priorities are altered, new alliances emerge, and possibilities previously inconceivable become attainable. We also know there will be an inevitable backlash. The most important factor limiting the backlash will be the strength of the communities of resistance that emerge as a result of people seeing themselves in the movement. People need to stay in the streets, agitating, keeping the pressure on to maintain focus on addressing these issues. Another protection for social movements is having the support of the population on the side of the protesters. We have made significant gains in the political fight for public opinion, which is why the attacks on Black Lives Matter, Antifa, and anarchism have dramatically increased. The right wing is mobilizing to protect white patriarchal capitalist privilege and power. An important benefit of protest participation is a sense of belonging to a powerful vehicle for social change and the knowledge that you are not alone in your outrage. The resulting sense of identity strengthens the will to resist in the moment and also prepares one for future battles. No matter who is elected in November, this agitation and movement building must continue. Despite the current administration's demonization, 
Today's anarchists work towards creating a free society, not merely through militant street demonstrations, but by engaging in workplace organizing, mutual aid projects, and the creation of democratic organizations and counter-institutions. We'll need a proliferation of wildcat strikes like those enacted by NBA players in support of black lives, and the generalization of oppositional politics throughout society. Anarchists are creating a culture that models defiance of white supremacy, values black lives, and defends those of us under attack because we are vulnerable, whether we are queer, trans, women, working class, or houseless. All of us. One driving force of history is the direct action of social movements from below. Major changes in Western democracies happen when legislation tries to catch up to and respond to pressure from social movements, such as the riots and civil rights movement of the 1950s and 60s. Today's world is far from anarchist ideals and will require fundamental societal changes in all areas of life, from how we organize ourselves economically to how we decide social and political priorities. Existing political elites and the ruling classes have a vested interest in keeping things as they are, even if that means the continued murder of black people by police, foreign military intervention, and a dangerously escalating climate crisis. They will not voluntarily give up power and share the wealth, as has been demonstrated throughout history. A social movement in the streets, workplaces, neighborhoods, and cities is essential. A militant movement brings everyday people into dialogue with elite decision makers. It makes us hard to ignore. As people achieve concrete victories, the movement continues and builds until a decisive moment when profound social, economic, and political change becomes possible. In this process, anarchists are motivated to empower people to share power collectively instead of allowing elites to hoard power for themselves. Social movements also need a vision for the future. Anarchism points us in the direction of creating a free and equal world. Anarchism offers a society in which no one is left out, in which no basic need remains unmet, and most importantly, an egalitarian culture where no one stands above or below or in the way of the genuine exercise of freedom. We share a desperate need for a fundamentally different society, one that does not wreak havoc on the environment in pursuit of profits, one where police no longer murder people of color to preserve white supremacy, one free of the exploitation of people's labor, and free of misogynist violence, a society where the people affected by political decisions are the ones making those decisions. A direct democratic society, principally opposed to domination and exploitation, is some of what anarchism offers and why it is so dangerous to the wielders of established power. Next up is a piece by David Sirota. This is published at dailyposter.com and is about the recent vice presidential debate. Kamala Harris has previously said she supports a ban on hydraulic fracking, but last night 
She used the vice presidential debate to reiterate Joe Biden's promise that a Biden-Harris administration would not move to halt the fossil fuel extraction technique, even as scientists warn that it is a driver of climate change. This pledge, made while Harris's own state is experiencing a climate-intensified gigafire, has depicted by national has been depicted by national reporters as savvy and smart politics for a Democratic ticket that supposedly must embrace fracking in order to win the crucial swing state of Pennsylvania. There's just one problem with that storyline. It isn't substantiated by empirical data. Indeed, the idea that a fracking ban is political poison in Pennsylvania is a fantastical tale fabricated by a national press corps that refuses to let public opinion data get in the way of fossil fuel propaganda and a manufactured narrative. For months, Washington reporters, egged on by Donald Trump, a pathological liar, have suggested that Democrats would be risking political death in Pennsylvania by proposing to restrict fracking. The New York Times headline blared, In crucial Pennsylvania, Democrats worry a fracking ban could sink them. The Los Angeles Times followed that up with its own headline. Joe Biden's Pennsylvania hurdle, voters who fear a California-style energy plan. Quartz last night asserted that a call for a fracking ban, quote, tempts political suicide in swing states like Pennsylvania. Somehow unmentioned is polling data showing that Pennsylvania voters support a crackdown on fracking. A January poll of Pennsylvania voters from Franklin and Marshall University found that, quote, more believe the environmental risks, 49%, of natural gas drilling outweigh the economic benefits than believe the economic benefits outweigh the environmental risks, 38%. The same poll found that, quote, More registered voters favor, 48%, a ban on hydraulic fracturing than oppose it, 39%. Notably, the poll showed 54% of voters in the populous suburban swing counties of southeast Pennsylvania support a ban. While Washington-based reporters remain loath to mention this data, the media in the state aren't. Poll, Pennsylvanians favor statewide ban on fracking, read a local CBS headline that was apparently too inconvenient to be mentioned by the creators of the national media narrative. Since that poll emerged, another more recent poll illustrated much the same sentiment. An August CBS YouGov poll found that 52% of Pennsylvania voters support a fracking ban. That includes not only a big majority of Democratic voters, but also strong majorities among traditional swing voters, 62% of self-identified moderate voters, and 55% of registered independent voters support a ban. A separate August survey by Global Strategy Group for Climate Power 2020 found that 50% of Pennsylvania voters have an unfavorable view of the fracking industry, while only 32% have a favorable view with a large majority supporting a phase out supporting a phase out of fracking the numbers were even worse for fracking industry CEOs who were viewed favorably by 21% of Pennsylvania voters and unfavorably by 53% of voters the same survey found large majorities supporting tough restrictions on fracking and phasing all of it out in the future 
It is certainly true that supporting a fracking ban is not a total political slam dunk in Pennsylvania. The industry is an employer in the state, the jobs are often unionized, and the CBS YouGov poll showed strong support for fracking among a majority of self-identified Republican voters. This explains why Trump, who is down in the polls in Pennsylvania, has been trying to bait Biden into an argument over fracking as a way to consolidate Trump's own GOP base in the state and demoralize progressives. However, the idea that political reality in Pennsylvania obviously requires Biden to respond to that GOP horseshit by doubling down on fossil fuel production, that's horseshit too. In recent years, the fossil fuel industry in Pennsylvania has faced intensifying criticism for its pollution and now faces law enforcement action over allegations of revolving door corruption and public health hazards. Those headline-grabbing scandals have coincided with the recent polling trends showing increasing support for restricting or banning fracking. There is no overwhelming evidence that opposing fracking is, quote, political suicide in Pennsylvania. Quote, Many pundits have proclaimed that opposition to fracking is a political taboo in the Commonwealth, and some candidates even try to project that an opponent is opposed to fracking for political gain. But those political maneuvers and opinions appear largely out of touch with reality, the Pittsburgh City Paper wrote in August. The paper added that CBS poll that the CBS poll goes against the conventional wisdom that politicians can't run on anti-fracking policies in Pennsylvania. In fact, in fracking-friendly Allegheny County, three political candidates won their primary elections this year while running on strong criticism of fracking and its related industries. Biden has rightly criticized Trump as a climate arsonist who ignores science, but his own hostility to a fracking ban isn't some empirical science-based decision. Climate experts say we must ban fracking, and polls show that you don't need to be a fracking shill to win in Pennsylvania. Biden's posture reflects the fact that he is an ancient, 1990s-style politician who has always sought to separate himself from his party's more progressive base. In this case, that meant he started his presidential campaign promising only a middle ground on climate policy, and now it means he and his running mate periodically boast to voters that they wouldn't possibly consider banning fracking, even amid a climate emergency that threatens the habitability of the entire planet. And yes, even amid climate-intensified fires that are right now burning down the home state of the Democratic vice presidential nominee. The Democratic ticket is certainly far better than Trump on the climate issue. But that ticket is now embracing a pro-fossil fuel position when there is no imperative to do so. That's a real problem when time on the climate clock is running out. And in contrast to the position currently being taken by the Democratic presidential and vice presidential candidates, here is the position of the Green Party presidential and vice presidential candidates. This is in response to a questionnaire uh, sent by the Green Party of Colorado to Howie Hawkins and Angela Walker. Many citizens of Colorado experience negative health reactions, for example, asthma, 
elevated rates of cancer, etc., because of the practices of the fossil fuel industry. What consequences should there be when this occurs? The fossil fuel industry should be nationalized so a democratically accountable public authority can ensure that what fossil fuels still need to be used during the transition to 100% clean energy are produced as cleanly as possible and that the revenues from fossil fuels are reinvested in renewables instead of more coal, oil, and gas infrastructure and production. Pending nationalization, the federal government should enforce the laws on the books against air and water pollution by fossil fuel companies. The law should be strengthened to hold the executives of fossil fuel companies personally criminally liable for breaking those laws. Question. In Colorado, just one fracking pad uses 1 to 5 million gallons of water per year. There are 60,000 wells now in Colorado, and more are being built. What is your plan of action to address this impact to our state's environment? Answer. Enact a federal ban of fracking. Enforce water pollution laws against fracking pads and make the industry pay for cleanup. Question. How do you plan to address people who work for the oil gas industry to ease their fears or doubts about transitioning away from carbon fuels? Answer. Enact a just transition program that guarantees all workers displaced by the transition away from fossil fuels to clean energy at least five years of previous wages and benefits until they find comparable work or retire. The budget for the eco-socialist Green New Deal projects the creation of 38 million new jobs to implement the energy transition. There will be plenty of jobs for oil and gas industry workers to go to. And in another battle on the fossil fuel infrastructure fight, here is Sarah Stidstone Gronum and Sailor Pochen with a piece at commondreams.org. 11 reasons why we stopped a massive fracked gas pipeline in New York City. In May, the New York Department of Environmental Conservation, DEC, decisively denied the Oklahoma pipeline company Williams a permit to build a high-pressure fracked gas pipeline in New York state waters. It was a huge victory for a grassroots movement that took on an unwinnable battle and won. Had it been built, the Northeast Supply Enhancement, NESE, pipeline would have run beneath the seafloor for over 20 miles starting in Raritan Bay in New Jersey and traveling along the shores of Staten Island and Brooklyn before ending off the Rockaways in Queens. While the DEC based its denial on the pipeline's threat to water quality, their decision was strongly influenced by the overwhelming public opposition to the pipeline, which made it politically impossible for any agency or elected official to support the project. As the primary leaders of this fight, we, a dozen activists from five local New York City groups, offer this retrospective assessment of the fight in hopes that others will find our reflections helpful or of interest. At the same time, 
We recognize that every place is different. Every fight has its particular aspects, and other states have very different political landscapes to contend with. Here in New York, for example, we benefited from having aggressive state climate legislation to cite as yet another reason for opposition. We are proud of what we did, but we fully recognize that luck and circumstance also played a real role in the outcome. Nonetheless, our fight against the Williams NESE pipeline highlights how powerful ordinary people can be when out of love for the planet, place, and one another, they work together to make a better world. Here's how we did it. We built the true grassroots movement centered on the communities most directly threatened. A large part of the battle, especially at the beginning, was informing people about the issue, particularly in the most vulnerable communities. The vast majority of people had no idea about the pipeline proposal, so we set out to change that. We spoke with people at community boards, beaches, farmers markets, public housing, shopping streets, and political clubs. We held information sessions across the city, and we collected names and emails on a petition and built an email list that we communicated with consistently. But we didn't just build a list. We offered people many ways to be involved. Show up at a rally, make a phone call, help with an art build, testify at a hearing, file a comment, write a letter to an editor, meet with an elected official. We sent emails sparingly so that people didn't burn out during the marathon fight, while always reminding them that they were making a difference. And we recruited other groups to help circulate our letters and updates to maximize our reach. Genuine collaboration kept us moving forward. Early on, we formed a coalition with five main groups, which remained the core coalition members throughout. At least one member from each group joined nearly every weekly call, which enabled quick decision-making. Different group members had different strengths, and we appreciated each other for that. No group tried to hog the limelight. We would strategize together on who would be the best voice in various circumstances. We had a high degree of trust in each other's good faith. On the rare occasion where we had conflict, we spoke frankly, but without personal rancor and then moved on without holding grudges. Meeting and talking often ensured accountability and continued engagement while providing emotional support and a regular dose of motivation. We made sure to celebrate together, and we made sure to vent together. We knew our stuff. Some coalition members dove deeply into the documents filed by the pipeline company and tracked down studies to counter their claims. These were summarized into easy-to-understand talking points on topics like the impact on the climate, the effects on wildlife, the threats to human health, the economic burden, and the company's safety record. We used these as a basis for public forums, letters to the editor, op-eds, and comments to regulatory authorities. By adapting the information for different audiences, we could make our case to everyone from workers to policy wonks and we always cited our sources. Money mattered, but not as much as you might think. Some of the core leadership were paid staff of their organizations, 
but others were volunteers, and literally thousands of people gave of their time to perform the myriad small acts required to get the job done. We did have to pay for flyers, art supplies, an occasional interpreter, and the modest cost of a website, but most of what went into this work was freely given. Costs were split equitably between groups. However, when a larger organization, 350.org, joined us in the fight, they responded to our concern that we needed well-documented proof that this pipeline was not needed, and used their financial resources to hire a professional researcher. This sophisticated analysis was important in persuading elected officials in particular that they could take a risk in, imposing the, in opposing the pipeline. So while most of what we accomplished we did on a shoestring, at key moments, money helped. We chose our words wisely. The long fight to win a statewide ban on fracking, which finally came in 2014, educated many people to the dangers of that widespread practice. We chose not to use the industry's manipulative description of choice, natural gas, in favor of fracked gas, because we knew it would resonate. We also constantly reminded the press and in others that fracked gas was methane, a greenhouse gas, far more potent than carbon dioxide. Importantly, we always use the conditional to speak of the pipeline, as in, the pipeline would threaten local marine life, not will, making clear that the pipeline's construction was not inevitable. Lastly, we continually reframe the industry talking point that, quote, New York needs gas, to, quote, New York needs energy. That let us expound on our vision of a truly renewable future with energy sources like wind, solar, geothermal, and battery storage. We stayed focused on the targets. While science and the law were on our side, we knew we couldn't win without building serious political pressure against the key decision maker in New York, Governor Cuomo. We relentlessly hammered Cuomo, showing up to picket any event he had in our region, and we flooded his DEC with tens of thousands of fact-based comments. We also identified secondary targets that could send clear messages to the governor. For instance, we helped persuade the New York City Council to pass a resolution against the pipeline, which sent a clear message that local elected officials opposed the project. We knew to avoid putting too much energy into pushing for a pipeline denial from the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission, FERC, which greenlights almost all fossil fuel infrastructure. But we also knew to trust that the NYSDEC would take public comments and climate science seriously, and we focused our efforts accordingly. We used every tool in the toolbox. The heart of our fight was a grassroots effort aimed at generating massive popular opposition to this project, yet we didn't shy away from also working from the inside. We lobbied relentlessly, scheduling meeting after meeting with city council members, state senators, and assembly members, and other government officials, and we wielded technocratic expertise and opinion when those things were called for, mobilizing the opinions of scientists and policy experts. We also used art and street theater to produce creative expressions of solidarity and grab people's attention in novel ways. And we engaged in nonviolent civil disobedience as part of larger efforts to stop fossil fuel infrastructure. Nothing 
was off the table. We utilized the press. A small team of people met regularly to hone our media strategy while building trusted relationships with journalists. We also had volunteers ready to write letters to the editor when articles misrepresented the situation. Even when letters like these don't get published, they alert reporters and their editors that there is substantial public interest in the issue. It's important to note that we received virtually no attention for at least a year and a half. But then, small neighborhood outlets began to write stories here and there, until finally we got larger outlets like The Nation and The Guardian to cover us. When they did, we were ready with our talking points. We got elected officials to pitch in. The importance of mobilizing grassroots opposition was never clearer than when we, we were approaching elected officials. Most politicians were only interested in throwing their weight behind the campaign when there was evidence that many constituents were opposed to the pipeline. Evidence of the drawbacks of the project was important too, but without the weight of sheer numbers, this would have been, for them, just one issue among many. Once we got a few key city council members and state representatives to join us, the resulting critical mass made it easier to persuade others till we had a groundswell of elected officials to match the popular opposition. We were not discouraged by doubters. We were often told, especially at the beginning of the campaign, that we had no chance of defeating this project. In one meeting, an elected official essentially told us that Williams was going to win, so we might as well try to get something out of the company for the community. We were never discouraged. We stayed together and stayed positive, and believed we could win all along. We relied both on science and the heart. We were on sure ground when wielding the science of climate change and marshalling wide-ranging data on everything from whale migration patterns and methane loss rates to the fuels currently being used in New York City boilers. And yet, this was a moral fight as well as a technical one. People who would have been affected by the construction of this pipeline on Staten Island in Brooklyn and the Rockaways had lived through Superstorm Sandy with its death and local destruction. Many communities have high asthma rates and elderly people who are vulnerable to heat waves. While non-New Yorkers often associate New York City with Broadway, Wall Street, and skyscrapers, city residents who live far from Manhattan are often of modest economic means living in some of the lowest income neighborhoods in our entire state. They have a deep connection to their neighborhoods and a deep love for the ocean. The construction of this pipeline would have released toxins into the waters where they swim and interfered with the marine life they want to protect. Love of place was as important a motivator as overarching concerns with the climate crisis. In the end, it was as decisive a factor as any in beating this disastrous project once and for all. In sum, so yes, we worked hard, and yes, words and facts in the press all mattered, and yes, we had the luck of living in a state which is publicly committed to facing the climate crisis head-on. But we also can't say enough about all the people who helped, all the volunteers who gave their time, the first elected officials who went out on a limb to support us, 
the reporters who cared about understanding what was really going on, the sister organizations who circulated our petitions and showed up to our rallies. And we had the moral support of a parallel campaign led by groups in New Jersey, where Williams proposed building another segment of this pipeline, along with the compressor station. All in all, solidarity in the name of a common vision of a more just and sustainable world ruled the day. This is how we build a future rooted in social and ecological justice. And now a piece by Howie Hawkins. This is published at the Howie Hawkins for President website, howiehawkins.us. Reject militarism on the anniversary of 9-11. 19 years after more than 3,000 people were killed on 9-11, there remains a bipartisan commitment to fight an endless war on terrorism, instigate regime change coups, increase military spending, enhance U.S. nuclear weapons, deport undocumented residents, curtail civil liberties, and militarize the police. September 11, 2001 attacks on the U.S. have obscured the other 9-11, the U.S. attack on Chilean democracy and the U.S.-backed coup on September 11, 1973. The two 9-11s are connected by what the CIA calls blowback. The CIA first used the term in describing the unintended negative consequences of the U.S. and U.K.-sponsored coup against the democratically elected government of Mohammad Mosaddegh in Iran in 1953. The September 11, 2001 attacks were blowback from decades of U.S. intervention in the Middle East. That doesn't justify the terrorism, but it does explain it. If we want peace and security for our nation, we should respect the peace and security of other nations. Contrary to Trump's lies about ending the endless wars, his administration has escalated the long war in the Middle East and North Africa with increased troop deployments, drone strikes, and special operations. Trump is also morphing the war on terror abroad into a war against dissent at home. He encourages and uses law enforcement to attack nonviolent protesters, calling them thugs and Antifa terrorists. He encourages white racist vigilante militias that show up armed to menace Black Lives Matter demonstrators and to intimidate local and state governments in armed protests against climate action, such as in Oregon, and COVID-19 public health measures in Arizona, Colorado, Idaho, Michigan, Ohio, Pennsylvania, Nevada, North Carolina, and Wisconsin. Trump encourages these actions with statements that amplify paranoid far-right fantasies that call climate change and COVID-19 hoaxes perpetrated by secret elite conspiracies. Trump has instructed the Immigration and Customs Enforcements and Border Patrol to violate immigration laws and subject immigrants and asylum seekers to unspeakable brutality, including separating children from their parents and internment in concentration camps where COVID-19 is running rampant. He stokes racial fears and civil strife to justify authoritarian rule. He calls the news media fake, the elections rigged, and promotes conspiracy fantasies on Twitter. 
Trump is sowing confusion and demoralization so people will not be able to resist repression by sections of law enforcement and the racist militias should Trump decide to resist a peaceful transfer of power. The ultimate blowback against U.S. coups and wars abroad against democracy threatens to be a coup against democracy at home. One of my first steps as president would be to end the wars on terrorism abroad and at home. Neither major party calls for ending the endless wars against terror abroad or even the top priority in the Office of National Security Strategy of the United States has changed to great power competition with the goal of preventing the emergence of strong regional powers in Eurasia, namely China, Iran, and Russia. This new Cold War, like the war on terrorism, is about the profits of U.S.-based global corporations abroad, not the security of the people of the United States at home. The nuclear modernization program initiated under Obama and continued under Trump with bipartisan support has destabilized nuclear balance of terror and kicked off a new nuclear arms race. The nuclear threat, coupled with an action by the great powers on the climate emergency and the proliferation of disinformation propagated by state actors on all sides that makes it difficult for publics to come together on what to demand of their governments, has prompted the Bulletin of the Atomic Scientists to move their doomsday clock closest it has ever been to midnight. I would end the saber-rattling against Russia, China, and Iran in the Great Power Competition Strategy and focus on diplomacy. We need to partner with other major powers to address our common problems, notably nuclear arms, climate, and cyber war. I would also end the bipartisan repression of dissent at home. With Trump's encouragement, law enforcement is using militaristic tactics to suppress peaceful protests against police brutality and systemic racism. Both major parties are united in suppressing whistleblowers like Edward Snowden and publishers like Julian Assange, whose real crimes in the eyes of national security state is that they exposed its secret wrongdoings. The U.S. should speak out against violations of human rights and democracy wherever they occur, but that should not preclude also working with authoritarian governments to resolve life-or-death global issues like climate change and nuclear arms. War and threats of war are the most powerful destroyers of civil liberties, democracy, and human rights. Military threats, economic sanctions, and covert meddling in the politics of other countries only reinforces the nationalist rationalizations of authoritarian governments for repression at home in order to ward off threats from abroad. The most powerful way to promote human rights is to set a good example. If the U.S. wants its advocacy of human rights to be credible and effective, it must set the right example at home, where police killings of black people are seen on social media around the world. A country where there is mass incarceration in the largest prison system in the history of the world and from where the U.S. military is deployed in some 800 foreign military bases for endless wars, making the U.S. the nation that the world's peoples considers the biggest threat to peace. Thirty years before the United States 9-11, the CIA orchestrated the violent overthrow of the democratically elected socialist government of Chile 
on September 11, 1973. It is a tragic coincidence of the U.S. bloody intervention history in Latin America that President Salvador Allende was overthrown and pushed to suicide on the same date that decades later would affect U.S. soil by a terrorist attack. The same feelings that Americans felt of being violated by the first foreign attack since Pearl Harbor were felt in Chile that September 11 in 1973. The sin of Salvador Allende in the eyes of Nixon, Kissinger, and CIA Director Richard Helms was to advance deep socialist reforms that would create a more equal society, a just distribution of incomes, real freedom of expression, and a truly democratic framework that could allow, finally, the participation and voices of all sectors, especially the impoverished workers of Chile. Sound familiar? These are exactly the challenges that the U.S. faces today, problems that have riddled the U.S. throughout its history and become worse in the Trump era. The authoritarian duopoly of Republicans and Democrats, voter suppression, third-party suppression, deep inequality from coast to coast, and chronic poverty. It is the same kind of repression that Chile suffers today under the conservative millionaire Sebastian Piñera, when people again advance the same reforms that Allende worked for and paid for with his life. It is the same social, economic, and political oppression that the two countries share on this anniversary of 9-11. In the immediate aftermath of the 9-11 attacks in the United States, the Green Party of the United States warned against the danger that the two major parties and the corporate media would turn this horrific crime into a rationale for destructive wars abroad and political repression at home. Instead of treating the 9-11 attackers as criminals to be brought to justice, the U.S. used the attacks as pretext for a long series of regime change wars in the Middle East and North Africa. The foreign policy leadership of the Bush administration had already written about the need for, quote, a new Pearl Harbor in order to provide the pretext for an invasion of Iraq to seize its oil fields. They wasted little time in getting started after 9-11. The authorization to use military force, AUMF, against the perpetrators of the 9-11 attacks passed Congress on September 18, with only one dissenting vote. The U.S. invasion of Afghanistan started on October 1. The AUMF legislation is still the legal basis for today's endless wars. The Patriot Act, which gave the federal government broad new intrusive surveillance and investigatory powers that weakened civil liberties, was overwhelmingly voted through Congress by October 25. The Bush administration, joined by the Democratic Amen Corner, led by Senator Joe Biden, lied about weapons of mass destruction and about Iraq's alleged role in 9-11 to start a second war in Iraq by March 2003. After 19 years, U.S. combat troops are now engaged in 14 wars, at least 37 million people, and as many as 59 million people have been displaced by these wars, creating the greatest refugee crisis since World War II. The annual observation of 9-11 
has been turned by politicians into a militaristic celebration of American power that is used to garner public support for U.S. military spending and imperial aggression abroad. Right after 9-11, the world was united in its grief for our country. It was a moment that should have been used to build peace based on mutual cooperation and respect. Let us remember 9-11 this year by demanding that the U.S. withdraw from its endless wars, prioritize diplomacy to resolve conflicts, end arms sales to belligerents, and provide humanitarian aid for war refugees, including reopening immigration to the U.S. from these countries. Let's turn the U.S. into the world's humanitarian superpower instead of its global military empire. Providing aid instead of arms is the best way to promote peace and security. It is time for the U.S. to make friends instead of enemies. Howie Hawkins is the presidential candidate of the Green Party of the United States in the Socialist Party, USA. And that'll bring us to our final piece for this episode. This piece is published at level.medium.com and is written by Angela Y. Davis. This article is part of Abolition for the People, a series brought to you by a partnership between Copernic Publishing and Level, a medium publication for and about the lives of black and brown men. The series, which comprises 30 essays and conversations over four weeks, points to the crucial conclusion that policing in prisons are not solutions for the issues in people the state deems social problems, and calls for a future that puts justice in the needs of the community first. Why arguments against abolition inevitably fail? Angela Y. Davis Movements against racist police violence and against entrenched racial injustices in this country's jails and prisons can claim a history that is almost as old as the institutions themselves. Precisely because opposition and protests calling for reform have played such a central role in shaping structures of policing and punishment, the notion of reform has superseded other paths towards change. Ironically, many efforts to change these repressive structures, to reform them, have instead provided the glue that has guaranteed their continued presence and acceptance. Both policing and punishment are firmly rooted in racism. Attempts to control indigenous, black, and Latino populations following colonization and slavery, as well as Asian populations after the Chinese Exclusion Act, and the World War II incarceration of Japanese Americans. Attempting to undo the harm of policing in prisons without attending to these immense embodiments of systemic racism is doomed to failure. The 20th century militarization of the police has been further intensified by Islamophobia. More generally, the evolution and expansion of the police and the prisons are constant reminders that capitalism has always fundamentally relied on racism to sustain itself. The insight that racism is essentially systemic and structural rather than individual and attitudinal 
one repeatedly asserted by healthcare advocates and anti-police and anti-prison activists over many decades, finally entered mainstream discourse in 2020 under the pressure of COVID-19 and its disproportionate impact on black and brown communities. Its most popular expression in the slogan, Defund the Police, was disseminated during the mass mobilizations protesting the police lynching of George Floyd. For those who recognize the deeply conservative repercussions of equating reform with change, the call to defund the police manifested an abolitionist impulse to eschew the usual calls for punishing individual police officers and instituting some form of civilian overview of the department. Instead of habitual and perfunctory calls for reform, organizers began to think more deeply about pathways towards more radical change. In other words, change that would begin to respond to some of the root causes of why poor communities, and especially communities of color, are particularly vulnerable to the criminal legal system. But for others, it had a jarring effect, conjuring up images of chaotic, crime-ridden, black and brown communities, with no force in place to guarantee order. Some people who live in so-called high-crime neighborhoods, where they are preyed upon not only by the police, but also by armed individuals and groups from their own communities, and from whom the demand to defund the police was their first introduction to abolitionist ideas, were understandably bewildered. How would they survive at the mercy of malevolent groups who hardly care about the trajectory of stray bullets that have taken the lives of children and other bystanders? Their fears are real and not to be dismissed. But this is absolutely the moment to engage in the kind of educational activism that might help to encourage all of us, especially those of us who live in the most vulnerable neighborhoods, to purposefully rethink the meaning of safety and security. Educators, organizers, artists, athletes, intellectuals, everyday people can play a major role in introducing ways of imagining the future that are not tethered to the notion that only the police can be effective guarantors of safety and that prisons alone can assure the security of people who populate the quote, free world. Anti-racist feminists have long argued that relying on conventional policing and carceral strategies exacerbates gender violence rather than eliminating it. But carceral feminism, a notion that calls for the buildup of police and prisons, still dominates the mainstream. Though some education activists have challenged carceral feminism by demanding the removal of police from schools and an end to the school-to-prison pipeline, we have not yet achieved a consensus in understanding that a police presence in public schools corrupts the educational process. Police are so deeply entrenched in public schools in black and brown communities that their oppressive modes of discipline infect learning itself. Security is not possible as long as the physical, mental, and spiritual health of our communities is ignored. Armed human beings, officially trained in efficient methods of administering death and violence, should not be dispatched in response to a black woman experiencing an episode related to a psychiatric disability. She may not only not receive help, 
but her behavior may well be used as a pretext to kill her. Safety and security require education, housing, jobs, art, music, and recreation. If the funds currently directed towards these institutions, police departments, immigrations and customs enforcement, jails, prisons, and immigrant detention facilities, were rerouted towards the public good, the need and justification for steadily expanding institutions of state violence would certainly decline. Abolitionist approaches ask us to enlarge our field of vision, so that rather than focusing myopically on the problematic institution and asking what needs to be changed about that institution, we raise radical questions about the organization of the larger society. For those who recognize that racism feeds the proliferation of police violence and the decades-old surge of prison populations, but who still insist that these institutions are simply in need of deliberate reform, it might be helpful to reflect on the fact that similar logic was used about slavery. Just as there are those who want change today but fear that these institutions are so necessary to human society that social organization would collapse without them, there were those who believed that the cruelty of the, quote, peculiar institution was not inherent to slavery and could indeed be eradicated by reform. Just as we hear calls today for more humane policing, people then called for a more humane slavery. Abolition of slavery, the death penalty, prisons, police, has always been a controversial political demand, not least because it calls attention to the fact that simply reforming specific institutions without changing their foundational elements may reproduce and perhaps even exacerbate the problems reform seeks to solve. The language of abolition evokes historical continuity. While most anti-slavery abolitionists simply wanted to get rid of slavery, there were those who did recognize early on that slavery could not be comprehensively eradicated simply by disestablishing the institution itself, leaving intact the economical, political, and cultural conditions within which slavery flourished. They understood that abolition would require a thorough reorganization of U.S. society, economically, politically, and socially, in order to guarantee the incorporation of formerly enslaved black people into a new democratic order. That process never occurred, and we are facing issues of systemic and structural racism in 2020 that should have been addressed more than 100 years ago. In the meantime, racial capitalism has become far more complicated. For example, the task of solving problems rooted in colonialism and slavery requires us to recognize how the carceral system and anti-black racism are linked to repressive border policing and detention directed at Latino communities and other immigrant communities. When we say defund the police, we should also call for the abolition of ICE, and we should always keep in mind that our predicament is shared by people in many parts of the world, from Brazil and Palestine to France and South Africa. Abolitionist strategies are especially critical because they teach us that our visions of the future 
can radically depart from what exists in the present. Just as trans activists have been partially successful in encouraging us to abandon the conventional gender binary and to comprehend its structural role in defining policing and imprisonment, this current conjecture demands that we believe in new possibilities. Such new possibilities would include rewarding jobs, critical education, decent housing, accessible health care, recreation, and art for all. It also demands that we conduct ourselves on our campuses, in our sports arenas, and in our political struggles, cultural work, and intimate lives as individuals and communities worthy of racial, gender, and economic equality, and worthy of radical socialist futures. And that'll wrap up this episode of Howie 2020. Check out all the back episodes of Howie 2020 and Bernie 2020 at Bernie-2020.com. You can also listen to all the back episodes and episodes of my other podcasts playing 24-7 at movingtrainradio.com. Here are Sharon Jones and the Dap Kings from the album Soul of a Woman. This is Searching for a New Day. Thanks for listening. Get home.